Texas is taking over the country. And, uh, you know, the politics have been spilling out of Texas for a long time. So whatever happens in Texas is the future of America. Lawrence Wright is one of two special guests this episode. He's the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Looming Tower and also God Save Texas, a cautionary homage to the Lone Star State. Very few authors as versatile as Wright in the U.S. today, but there might be one just down the street from him in Austin, Texas. It's a fascinating mystery why this place, which should be 17 different states, manages to cohere as one. That's Stephen Harrigan, Wright's neighbor and good friend. He's the award-winning author of The Gates of the Alamo, one of the most widely read Texas novels, as well as a supersized but palatable history of Texas, Big Wonderful Thing. This is The Purple Principle. I'm Robert Pease, and welcome to the fifth episode in our miniseries on Texas identity. A privilege to also welcome New Yorker staff writer, Lawrence Wright. You see people coming to Texas because of what they perceive the identity of Texas being. And, you know, within weeks, they're wearing hats and boots. You know. <laughs> and longtime Texas Monthly contributor, Stephen Harrigan. You know, you come to a place and you see see the power of its iconography and its imagery. And you don't want to turn your back on that necessarily. It's not all toxic, as some people believe. Wright and Harrigan were fated to collaborate as they have on many screenplays. Born in the same hospital in Oklahoma in the same year, they've been Austin neighbors for decades and seen an awful lot of change. So let's get their take on the state of Texas state identity. Traditionally proud yet folksy, pretty loud and yet neighborly, starting off with Steve Harrigan. Well, I think it is. It's being diluted a bit by just natural occurrences, like, you know, lots of people moving here and different kinds of people with different expectations of what this state should be or ought to be. And what you see, I think, with particularly our state government feels to me like a, a rear guard action trying to defend that traditional Texas identity against, uh, you know, against a, a surge of different views and different opinions about what Texas ought to be. Yeah, we also have to point out that a lot of people here are coming here are tax refugees. So they're identifying with the tax code more than with the identity. And you're thinking specifically maybe of people coming from California or New Jersey or high tax states like that? Yeah, yeah. It's in many respects wonderful. You know, we're getting a lot of great people moving to town. They're entrepreneurial. They have money. They want to be philanthropists. You know, I've been very impressed with so many of the people that I met. And, you know, the truth is identities, you know, there are many different identities. You know, Austin has an identity that is sort of contra-Texan. <laughs> and uh, people like come to the, you know, move to Austin for that. Midland is an entirely different identity. El Paso, San Antonio, I mean, all of these places within Texas have their own identity. Yeah, well, Stephen, your book actually starts with the waving cowboy image, and you say it's no longer possible for any image to express the colliding identities Texas has become. So tell us about a few of those important identities from your perspective. Well, from my perspective, what's so fascinating to me is 
Here you have a state of, you know, almost 30 million people, you know, something like, I think, 280,000 square miles, you know, a place that has forests and seacoast and plains and prairies and mountains and deserts. And there is this still strangely binding force that keeps everyone in Plano or in Galveston or in El Paso or in the Piney Woods feeling like they all belong to the same place. Yeah, and Lawrence, in your book, you said that Texas is at once the most super American of states and the most indigestible. But there yeah. does seem to, there does seem to be some digestion going on. Is that Texas digesting national politics or the country digesting Texas politics? Texas is growing so fast. It has been for decades, but by 2050, which is not that far away. Texas will be, instead of nearly 30 million people, it'll be 50 million people. It'll be more than that. It'll be the size of New York and California combined. Well, before we get to the future of Texas, I'd like to go into a little bit of the history, some of the amazing characters, individuals that Texas has produced over time. And most of our listeners are not in Texas, so perhaps not as familiar but I'd like to start, if we may, with Sam Houston, who is you know, a fascinating character at a pivotal time in history. Stephen, let's start with you, since you write extensively about him in your book, Big Wonderful Thing. Well, I said in the book, there's a, uh, on Interstate 45 in Huntsville, there is a 67-foot-high statue of Sam Houston that you, you definitely can't miss. And I make the point that it's not out of scale. He has a towering presence in Texas history. I would argue probably he and Lyndon Johnson are the two most significant Texans in that sense. And, you know, Houston was the former governor of Tennessee who left the state under strange circumstances, to say the least, (laughs) when his wife abruptly uh, ended their marriage. And he ended up living among the Cherokees and being called by them big drunk (laughs) He sort of resuscitated his career by coming to Texas as a protege of Andrew Jackson, ended up winning the battle of or leading the Texian forces that won the Battle of San Jacinto in April of 1836, which made it possible for Texas to gain its independence from Mexico. He was the president of an independent republic. He was the governor of a subsequent state. He was the senator from that state. He lost his governorship because he refused to sign the oath, you know, declaring for the Confederacy. And so he's had this umbrella-like effect over much of Texas history. And though he's a complicated character with all sorts of shading, as all historical characters are, he's much revered today still in the state. And every Texas governor in his or her heart still believes that they're the reincarnation of Sam Houston. (laughs) It's not true, but <laughs> they don't live up to that, I have to say. Right, no. uh, well, he seems like such a independent, sort of maverick type of individual that would be so refreshing today, but could he survive a political primary at any level? <laughs> it's interesting. He would he would make quite a show of himself if he were running for office today. And it might yeah. it might possibly, Larry, I mean you may have a different opinion, but it might possibly transcend the polarization. There's only one person, I think, in Texas who truly transcends the political polarization, and that's Willie Nelson. Yeah. And I might 
put Sam Houston in that potential category. Yeah, it's certainly true that Willie is a transformative figure, and uh, he's not had very much effect politically. And uh, he goes down to the Capitol every time there's a session and promotes uh, legalization of marijuana. And uh, his clothes are all made of hemp, but it hasn't hasn't transformed Texas into a pot available state yet. But Sam. I think he really set the the tone for Texas politics. At the bottom of that giant statue that Steve mentions is a motto, Sam Houston's motto, which, Steve, you can correct me if I get it wrong, but govern wisely and as little as possible. The first part of that admonition hasn't always been obeyed, but uh, the governing as little as possible is a guiding mandate for most Texas politicians. We're talking with the noted authors, longtime friends, and longtime Texans, Lawrence Wright and Stephen Harrigan. An interesting point there from Lawrence Wright about politics spilling out of Texas for a long time. That certainly rings true in terms of the many Texas politicians who've made the move to Washington, D.C., and some to the White House. Three recent U.S. presidents within the past six decades, possibly more to come as Texas grows in population and influence. The past is often prologue, and if that's the case, we better learn a bit more about those Texans who've risen to national prominence. Coming up, Stephen Harrigan on the first Texan who rose to leadership in the post-war era, Sam Rayburn, U.S. House Speaker for almost two decades. A fascinating character. He came from a from nothing, really, and leveraged himself up to one of the most uh, longstanding and powerful people in Washington. And a very lonely figure, a very, uh, yeah. you know, a, a poignant figure because he he was unmarried, he was childless, and I think there was a kind of father-son relationship that he and Lyndon Johnson had mm-hmm. that when you read about it, makes you feel just the, the human warmth there that that exists below the, the kind of cold calculations of politics. I'm at peace with the world. I have no enemies that I want to punish. I have thousands upon thousands of friends that on this day I am grateful to for the manifold kindnesses that they have showered me with throughout years. One of the things about Rayburn, I think, is that his colleagues always recognized that he was the best. He was elected to this, you know, to the Texas House Speaker at a very young age. When he was campaigning, he had an opponent, and uh, he came from Brenham, Texas, a little East Texas town, and they would campaign together. They, they would drive around. Did Steve was it? Were they in a? buggy uh, uh, was and they had a car i guess but oh, yeah. they would ride around uh together they formed a friendship that lasted for the rest of their lives but that kind of civility in politics is totally absent of course now but that's the kind of person that sam rayburn was yes well let's talk about a very different kind of texan ross perot interesting figure most successful independent presidential candidate a billionaire not a big nafta fan Tell us a bit about Ross Perot. Uh, what really intrigued me when he ran, uh, and I covered his campaign, 
you know, people hated, as they still do, many people hate Texas for what it stands for. And what they perceive it stands for is, in Dallas in particular, after the assassination, there was this sense of authoritarianism, of a kind of top-down management style, militaristic, bombastic, all of those things were the very things that caused people to like Ross Perot. It was weird to me to see the world turned upside down in this elfish man who seemed to know very little about government, but he had total confidence that he could take care of anything. And his office was like a museum of American patriotism. It was a fascinating place. He had the that picture of the you know the Revolutionary War, the drum and fife. He had a, one of the Gilbert Stuart Washington portraits. He had the original maquette of the Lincoln Memorial. He was a super patriot. And I don't know, I found myself being very fond of him, although maybe I didn't treat him as nicely in my story <laughs> as I should have. What's interesting to me about Perot is that he was a political outsider that paved the way for people like Donald Trump. Like Larry said, he was sort of plain spoken. He mm-hmm. said whatever was on his mind. He, he was a lot more prepared, I think, in a way to be president than Trump was. But he, oh, yeah. he created that space where people were curious about him. Pay a dollar an hour for your labor. Have no health care. That's the most expensive single element making a car. Have no environmental controls, no pollution controls, and no retirement. And you don't care about anything but making money. There will be a giant sucking sound going south. Well, let's talk about Ann Richards then. Very charismatic figure, great speaker, kind of a populist Democrat. Texas was largely a Democratic state up to 25 years ago. Pivoted rather quickly. Ann Richards did not come from a political or privileged background and yet was elected governor. I think she was an inspirational figure to a lot of people. It's, you know, you can, yeah. You'll get different opinions about how effective she was as a governor and what her legacy as a political figure was. But her legacy as, a, as someone who inspired women in particular all over the state and all over the world, I think is rock solid. And uh, she was... You know, all you have to do is go to the uh, the Democratic convention where she, you know, gave that keynote speech, and you get a sense of of her humor and her presence, and how how powerful a figure she loomed as in the imagination of so many people. Because after listening to George Bush all these years, I figured you needed to know what a real Texas accent sounds like. But when we pay billions for planes that won't fly, billions for tanks that won't fire, and billions for systems that won't work, that old dog won't hunt. Well, you know, she was, George Bush beat her even though she was popular. People liked her, but they decided they'd rather have Bush as governor. And the way she got elected in the first place, she was running against this West Texas oil man named Clayton Williams, a real good old boy in the classic mold, said unbelievably stupid things about, you know, making jokes about rape, for instance. And but and all of that was like, oh, we know who that kind of guy. It didn't really weigh against him. But what killed him was there was a debate between Ann Richards and Clayton Williams. And uh, so they meet and Ann sticks out her hand and says, hello, Clady. 
and he refused to shake her hand. That's against the Texas code. His poll numbers plummeted and he lost. And I'm convinced that was a turning point because it just crossed the line with a lot of Texans. You may not agree with her, but you do not refuse to shake a lady's hand. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit more about that Texas code. Is it still as strong? What other types of you know, behavior does it entail? Because from the outside, we do see you know, a lot of pretty extreme rhetoric coming out of Texas. Yeah. You see a lot of extreme rhetoric, but the reality of living here, I think, is different. Texas is still a, a friendly place to be. It's not, you know, we have our issues for sure, but there is, I think, still a kind of core of civility here, just like in the rest of the country. And yes, Texas has a different, a different historical identity based on the fact that it was an independent nation for almost 10 years. But it is, if you came here and you had never been to Texas and you were expecting people walking around with guns and uh, and riding horses and all the cliches, you would be stunned, I think, by how normal a place it is. Yeah, well, you mentioned George W. Bush did defeat Ann Richards for governor. And there's an interesting study in there somewhere of bipartisanship, if we're understanding correctly, the relationship between George W. Bush and Bob Bullock, the powerful lieutenant governor at that time. He was a character. Yeah. (laughs) And he he was, uh, uh, you know, not as balanced a personality as Texas has sometimes been blessed with. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, all over the place, you know, uh, had a habit of pulling out a gun every now and then (laughs) in in opportune moments. But very... uh, very pragmatic and saw something in Bush that he liked. And so the two formed an, you know, an odd bedfellows partnership that really paid off. They, they had a good working relationship. They coalesced around issues that made sense to both Republicans yeah. and Democrats at the time. And, uh, you know, they were uh, both recovering alcoholics and they were, I wouldn't say they were soulmates because I think Bullock was a lot weirder than Bush was, but yeah. but they were but they had a good working relationship that I think probably benefited Texas in the long run. That no one doubted that Bob Bullock was devoted to Texas and wanted the best for it. I will not give up on a generation of young Texans, and neither should you. And that got him through a lot. I mean, he had five wives. He had a terrible drinking problem. The arrests, you know, he pioneered the bad politician (laughs) and the political lifestyle that should have taken most politicians out of office. Bob floated above all that somehow. And uh, I guess one thing you'd have to say about the Texas identity is we cherish our political figures, even the ones that go totally nuts. (laughs) Well, uh, a couple of other more recent figures that we thought were quite interesting, one of whom will be a guest on the show, Congressman Wilby Hurd has a book coming out, represented the border region, tried to promote some solutions to the stalemate on immigration reform. And also Joe Strauss, Speaker of the House, more of a moderate Republican, who kind of read the populist direction, decided not to run. You know, I know both of those guys 
pretty well. And I'm, I'm sad that they're not in politics right now, because I think that's the direction that, you know, the moderate centrists of either party is the direction that Texas really needs to steer toward. And the fact that neither one of them feels that they can occupy an office in Texas right now is a damning critique of the direction that our state has taken. Yeah, it's a real tragedy because both those guys are smart and talented and committed and balanced in a way that we just don't see in Texas politics right now and Texas government. We've just gone through a short list of the Texas politicians who became national leaders in recent decades as Texas transitioned from complete Democratic to complete Republican control. During this same period, Texas has become a stronger economy and recently attracted a number of California-based companies, including Tesla, Oracle, and Samsung. That bumps up against the slogan, Don't California My Texas, which is just a bit hypocritical coming from the office of Governor Greg Abbott since that administration courted those companies. There's also thousands of individuals moving to Texas every week, in part because of low taxes and good jobs. We asked Wright and Harrigan about all that influx into a fairly traditional place. First up, Lawrence Wright. There's no question that they're changing the state, and in many ways for the best. I mean, you know, it's stunning to me with all the people moving to Texas that our unemployment rate stays so low. And that's because jobs are being created faster than people are moving here. And a lot of those jobs are, you know, immigrants from California. There's no question about it. We see their logos all on buildings downtown. And you could see the the physical representation of that migration is very evident to everyone in Texas. I was talking to an entrepreneur who, one of the tech guys who's moved from the Bay Area and a very successful Silicon Valley uh, creator. And he said, you know, we failed California. We failed San Francisco. And I just hope we don't do the same thing in Texas. I think the the phrase, don't California, my Texas, is part of that rear guard action of defending the Texas identity. At the root of it, I guess, is a fear from Governor Abbott and others that Texas will just become another place, that it won't be unique. It won't have this colossal you know, self-identity. And so California, in their mind, is, you know, who knows what it is, but it's almost an, uh, an arch enemy of the Texas identity. The idea, you know, Texas and California have always had a kind of seesaw relationship. When you mentioned, you know, 30 years ago, Texas was Democrat. Well, and California was Republican. Ronald Reagan was governor. You know, these states move in relationship to each other. So there is a kind of, and it's fascinating, you know, that we live in a country where you have two states that are so different politically and yet so fluid that, you know, they're constantly in flux. Eventually, California will become more conservative, I'm convinced, and Texas will become more liberal. Well, let me ask then about, Lawrence, your former neighbor there in Austin, Matthew McConaughey, his more serious thought about running as a passionate centrist for governor. 
ultimately decided not to. But I wonder, would someone like that, who obviously has a following, obviously telegenic, and obviously authentically Texan, would he have a chance as a passionate centrist in Texas? I thought so. Governor Abbott has been governor a long time. And uh, he's made a lot of mistakes. Uh, you know, the, the horrible storm that we had uh, last year, more than 200 people died. You know, the grid failed. We came within a fraction of having the grid entirely fail to the point that it would take months to restore it. You know, I said, if there's one thing that, that might knock off the immigration to Texas, it was drought. Well, also the failure of the grid. If Texas actually came to a stop, in terms of providing energy, which we almost did. Now, Matthew, he's smarter than a lot of people give him credit for. What he's devoting himself to now, he calls himself the Minister of Culture. He doesn't just call himself that. That's his actual title. (laughs) Actual in what sense, Steve? It's an official title at the University of Texas. (laughs) Okay, all right. Well, is there a uniform? No, there's not a uniform, and, and he's very serious about it. You know, I know it's, it's, he is. It's, I know. He, I thought it was a joke, but uh, no. but he he wants to make sure that Texas retains this identity and the onslaught of new personalities moving into the state. And I I think there's always been that sense in Texas that we're going to lose who we are. Like, remember when we moved here, Steve? The motto of Austin was "Keep Austin Weird." And, uh, you know, there were bumper stickers and T-shirts and stuff like that enjoining people to be weird, uh, which they didn't need a lot of encouragement. But what Matthew is trying to do is try to instruct people to hang on to the things that make us distinct and that add the sense of community to our culture. Matthew McConaughey was very interesting, particularly in the early days of the pandemic, when he did several uh, PSAs, you know, public service announcements about how to make a mask out of a bandana. Here's how. So you lay down your favorite bandana, unfold it like so. Get your trusty coffee filter that you had on the go. Get your two rubber bands. Roll one down one end like this. Roll the other one down this end like that. Fold them over like so. Grab a hold and you're good to go. Now remember, stay at home. But if you gotta go, strap it on like so. And he did a telethon, a fundraiser for the victims of the storm. And, you know, he is one of those figures, possibly, who could fit into the uh, Willie Nelson category of someone who could bridge the divide between left and right. Well, Stephen and Lawrence, that brings us to our last question. We ask all our guests, to show a bit of purple and name one prominent Democrat and Republican, either living or from recent memory, that you think could help bridge the divide? I think we've talked about two of them, and I'm hoping their political careers are not over, which is Joe Strauss and Will Hurd. I mean, it yeah. they're both Republicans, and I'm mostly a Democrat, but I feel like they, to me, are voices of moderation and sanity, which is what Texas needs more than anything. I'll mention two. One was George W. Bush, who was an excellent governor and governed in a bipartisan state. Uh, both the Lieutenant Governor Bob Bullock and Pete Laney, who was Speaker of the House, were Democrats, and they endorsed him for president. You know, it was a, it was a period of uh, civility 
in Texas. And George was a serious governor. He did an excellent job. And I'd like for him to be more vocal now. He still has authority. He represents a Republican Party that seems to have gone down with the ship. And I'd like to see him be more vocal about Texas and what, what it means and how, where we should be going in the future. The other person I would offer is Lady Bird Johnson. She was a fascinating woman, given little credit uh, during her lifetime. But, you know, during the Johnson administration, she was the architect of many of the most important bills. And, you know, her love of wildflowers and so on is very much reflected in Austin. And we have the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center. There's so many things that she touched and she brought into the consciousness of Texans about their environment, about the need to preserve the things that are beautiful and to beautify the things that are not. And she was in some respects ideal in her role as a first lady and, and also as a significant figure in Texas. Beautification, to my mind, is far more than a matter of cosmetics. To me, it describes the whole effort to bring the natural world and the man-made world into harmony, to bring order, usefulness, delight to our whole environment. I think what Larry and I are both pining for is someone who can lower the temperature, someone who can place civility and temperate thought above political advantage. And uh, there aren't that many that, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there, but there aren't that many that spring to mind in this political environment that we have now. That was Stephen Harrigan there, and before him, Lawrence Wright, both bemoaning the loss of moderation and civility in Texas politics, as in the nation at large. We learned a lot about Texas in this discussion. Lawrence Wright turned around our question about national politics affecting Texas identity by pointing out Texas strongly influences our national identity. Meanwhile, Stephen Harrigan, he emphasized the rearguard action the current GOP leadership in Austin is taking against social and cultural change. It's a huge, fascinating, and influential place worth watching and further listening. So we'll be talking Texas and national politics again in our next episode with former Congressman Will B. Hurd, the CIA agent who became a three-term moderate Republican Congress member from a traditionally Democratic and largely Hispanic South Texas district. A successful legislator and technology expert, Will Hurd has a list of important recommendations for his state, his party, and the country in his just-published book, American Reboot. When you look at every industry needs workers, every industry is looking to hire, guess what? You know, streamlining legal immigration would help with that problem. And so we have a real opportunity to get those, you know, to benefit from what I call the brain gain from all these other countries and get them here. It, it makes sense. It's good for our country. And this is one of the things that has made America so great and made us the place that so many people want to come. We hope you'll join us for that next episode with former Congressman Hurd. He's a breath of fresh, pragmatic air in our polarized politics. We also highly recommend his book, American Reboot, just out from Simon & Schuster. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, connect with us on social media, and review us on Apple subscriptions or ratemypodcast.com slash purple. This is Robert Pease for the whole Purple Principle team, with special thanks, as always, to our composer, Ryan Adair Rooney, for the original music. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production. 